21st Century Women podcast where we hear from fabulous women doing interesting things. And the goal is to celebrate their unique story while getting a little dose of inspiration ourselves. I am your host, Jenna Watts, and you're listening to episode number 91 with Christy Goodwin, one of Australia's leading digital wellbeing and productivity experts and author of Raising Your Child in a Digital World. Welcome to 21st Century Women, Christy. Great to be here. I have wanted to talk to you for a while now because uh, as a new mum, I'm absolutely interested in what is too much screen time and how do we have a really nice balance with kids and in the digital world that we live in. And it couldn't be more relevant than what we're faced right now with COVID-19. So we're going to cover a few of these topics um, over this podcast. But first things first, I've read on your website you don't suggest that we ban the iPhone and that digital abstinence isn't the solution. Can you just explain a little bit more about this? Sure. So I think the reality is whether we love it or loathe it, um, that we are living and raising children and adolescents in a digitalized world. So even if we don't like technology, even if the thought of us makes us cringe, or um, maybe we're at the other extreme where our thought of being digitally disconnected from our devices fills us with um, dread. There's a condition called nomophobia, which many adults suffer from, and that is literally fear of not having your mobile phone in close proximity. Um, whatever your relationship with is with technology, the reality is that technology is going to be an integral part of our children and adolescents' lives. So banning it or um, suggesting that it's toxic or taboo or should be avoided isn't helpful. Um, we need to use it with our children in appropriate ways um, so that we can teach them how to use it, but also we have a responsibility as parents to mitigate the potential pitfalls and negative aspects of them using the technology. The language that we use and the guidelines and the boundaries that we give them, does this change throughout their age or is it pretty much the, the same throughout? Look, we do have Australian um, government guidelines when it comes to screen time, and they vary um, according to a child's developmental age. So at the moment in Australia, the recommendation is for no screen time for zero to two-year-olds. Now, please, I can hear some of you gasping and taking deep breaths or mm -hmm. being filled with um, what I call techno guilt. Um, I didn't write these guidelines. And later on, I'm going to explain why I don't actually um, suggest that we strictly adhere to them. Um, so at the moment, the government guidelines, as I said, are for no screen time for not to two-year-olds. For two to five-year-olds, the recommendation is no more than one hour per day. And for five to 12, in fact, for five to 17-year-olds, uh, wait for it, the recommendation is two hours of total screen time per day. Now, I can imagine some of you rolling your eyes or sitting there with your hands in your head thinking, my goodness, I, you know, I failed my child. They'll never get into Harvard. I've ruined them <laughs> um, because they've had a lot more than the prescribed dose of digital. Um, these guidelines um, are a suggested range. They're also based on very outdated research. A lot of the research for these guidelines were based on passive uses of technology. So where you sat and you just watched. Today with interactive technologies like tablets and smartphones that are a lot more interactive, um, these guidelines haven't taken into account. My other concern with these guidelines is that they only use one metric and they only look at time. And whilst time is important, especially if the amount of time time kids or, or young people are spending on devices displaces or it supersedes or it interferes with their basic developmental needs, we need to look at more than just how much. How much is really just one piece of the puzzle? 
yes, it is important, especially if it's interfering with those needs, um, but we really need to have a bit more of a broader, more nuanced conversation about screen time rather than just obsessing on the how much. Um, those guidelines too um, only look at the educational use of, sorry, the leisure use of technology. So that doesn't include that two hours a day for five to 17 year olds doesn't include what they're doing at school. Um, this is just recreational use um, of screen. So outside of school use. So is there good screen time and bad screen time, like you said there with school learning and different things? Absolutely. So what we really need to look at when I said have a broader conversation, we need to look at beyond how much, look at what are they doing? Is it leisure? Is it learning? Is it active? Is it passive? Is it developmentally appropriate? Um, and this is where those guidelines where we just focus on how much are really narrow because your child might be meeting, let's say they're a three to five year old and they're meeting their one hour limit, but that one hour limit has been spent watching mindless age-inappropriate YouTube clips, then they've met this, their, their quota or their quotient of screen time, but that has not been good quality. Um, a bit like when you eat food, we often focus, we don't always focus on the calories or the kilojoules. We tend to focus on what it is. The nutrient um, density, for example, um, is more important than just the amount of food that you eat. Um, so I think, yes, there's definitely good and, and, and better choices perhaps when it comes to screen activities. So then rather than parents cringing and going, I've failed my child, especially those under five, rather than taking that attitude, they could go, right, how can I make sure that the screen time that they're going to get is better quality than, you know, watching YouTube, YouTube things, something that's a bit more educational where they're learning. Is that okay to not feel guilty, I suppose? Absolutely. So the way I recommend that parents ease their techno guilt is, as you suggested, Jenna, focusing on what it is that they're doing. Is it high quality content? Is it age appropriate? Um, and there's some places you can go. The problem with technology is that it's constantly evolving and changing. So it's hard for parents to keep up. So go to trusted sources where you know they're vetting the content and you can be pointed in the right direction as to what is appropriate for young kids. The other thing that I say to parents is I created a really simple formula for parents to say, look, are my kids, um, is technology being used in an appropriate way so that it's not interfering with their basic needs? And my um, research looked at what children need for optimal development. So I look at neuroscience and developmental science, and those two fields of research tell us very clearly, very specifically, exactly what young children and, and uh, adolescents need for optimal development. And they need basic things. We need to make sure that technology isn't interfering with things like their relationships. Are they getting enough time playing, being physically active? Are they meeting the requirements? We do have really good government requirements in terms of the amount of physical activity they should get, also the amount of sleep. Um, so making sure that those basic developmental priorities aren't interfered with. If your child's basic needs are being met, then we can give them screen time and not have to fret and have all this moral panic about technology harming them because their basic developmental priorities have been met first. So that I found helps to alleviate the guilt and the panic and the this sort of scaremongering that a lot of parents go down into. Um, I often say to parents, you know, take the pressure off. We are the very first generation of parents who are raising kids in this complete digital world. 
we do not have any frame of reference. We can't think back to our childhoods and think about how our parents dealt with the digital dilemmas um, that we're facing because the only issue our parents faced was what television show we could watch. That was basically, you know, as far as technology went. But today, parents, you know, technology is mobile, it's omnipresent, and it's an integral part of all of our lives. Um, so we're sort of trying to look around and fumble our way through as the parent, as parents. The other thing that makes it hard is that this is the very first time where our children often know more about a topic than what their parents do. So this is why we've sort of got parents in this tailspin feeling confused, conflicted and concerned. The other issue that makes it really hard is that the media tends to demonise technology with kids. Mm. We only ever hear the negative reports and the doom and gloom stories. So parents are led to believe that it must be bad for them. And I guess I want to point out as a researcher, it's not all bad, you know, all negative. There's so much research that tells us technology can be positive if it's used in age-appropriate ways and not at the expense of their needs. Is it there's some really obvious things like, for example, going out for a family dinner and your kid's not sitting on their iPad? I mean, that's not okay or is it okay? Look, this is a very polarising topic. Uh, the reason that I say this is that I have shared some thoughts on this um, on my blog over the years and I don't think I've ever received so much hate mail. Um, <laughs> well, I, nobody would I mean, be happy. Well, you you. you Look, I often share the research. Um, I go back, I I hide behind what research and science tells us. It is a highly personalised choice. And I often say we've also got to be careful about not techno-judging other people. We never, ever know anyone's full story. Um, In my book, I shared a story of a father who was at the park with his son um, and he was playing with his son and then he had a whole lot of a flurry of messages come through on his phone. He pulled his phone out and he dealt with it. A grandmother who was at the park saw what happened and took a photo of this gentleman on his phone, shared it on social media and shamed him saying, you know, it was disgusting that he was at the park and was sitting there on his device. Now, what this person didn't realise when she was making these judgments and sharing it on social media that was that this young man received a message to indicate that he had in fact received a job interview the next day. He then was sending a flurry of messages to people to try and arrange for childcare for his son so that he could attend the interview. So we never ever know any anyone's full story um this is a very long-winded answer so I can try and dodge this (laughs) polarizing question look we have to be really careful I'm going to tell you what the research says if we give children digital devices all of the time to placate them to calm them to be sort of the self-soothing mechanism um, children become very habituated so it can become a form of digital dependence and this is why we often get the techno tantrums Um, this is where your child emotionally combusts when they either have to go off the technology or when you refuse to give it to them Um, we also know that the dinner table whether you're at a restaurant or at home is a really rich opportunity for ping pong serve and return interaction you don't get that when a child's you know distracted by a screen so you know if there are extenuating circumstances you know if there is a a critical conversation that has to be had at the dinner table that can only be had then then perhaps using the screen with your child is going to give you that but using it as your go-to mechanism or using it all the time or as the default mode the other thing we know with their dinner table is that's preliminary research coming out telling us that if kids are always eating with or in front of the screen, their taste preferences and predispositions are changing. They only want to eat 
easy foods that are, you know, not hard to chew. They don't want to try new flavors and textures because their focus and attention on the screen. So there's a whole lot of things to consider. I'm just, I guess, trying so you to make dog. your own mind up based on this evidence. Right, based on the evidence. Yep. Um, okay. Yeah. And your context and what will serve you best at that point in time. You know, if it's going to give you, say you've had a crappy day, you've had a death in the family and you just need to have some uninterrupted time with your partner, maybe that is the best choice. But just be mindful. It can become a very um, compulsive behavior very quickly yeah. if that's what kids are accustomed to. Yeah, of course. And it makes sense. When we get to older kids, you mentioned before, we are in the digital era. So it is, you know, as a parent, I'm faced with, I want to support my children with technology. That's their life. It is going to be in their life, whether we like it or not. Um, So I guess, how do we raise a child to be digitally native in every way so that they can work and flourish in a tech world whilst restricting them at the same time? Do the two contradict themselves or is it a balance? Look. It is, it is a balance. So my key message is that parents need to be the pilot, not the passenger of the digital plane. And as the pilot of the digital plane, um, you need to be providing guidance with your children about how they use technology. Um, they need explicit instruction. They need um, the skills to be able to use it, but to also be able to switch it off. They need to be taught how to use it respectfully and responsibly. Um, it really is important that we teach our children how to control technology, not the other way around where a lot of adults find themselves in the predicament where technology controls them. Most adults are now no longer more than one metre proximity away from their phone. Um, Adults, if they don't have nomophobia, that fear of not having their phone, many of them suffer from a funny condition called, um, uh, no, sorry, called phantom vibration syndrome, where you physically feel like your phone is vibrating and it's nowhere near your body. These aren't healthy signs of technology behaviours. Given that this is going to be our children's future, we want them to use the technology, but to use it in healthy and helpful ways. So as the pilot of the plan, I say parents have to get three Bs right. The first one is boundaries. Um, Boundaries around obviously how much time, but also what do they use, play, create. When times of the day, that is really critical for their capacity to focus in their sleep. Um, Where do they use it? Where are the no-go tech zones in your house? Um, How do they use it? Are they using it in ways that will support, not harm their vision, their hearing and their musculoskeletal health? Um, With whom do they use it? You know, do you know the apps and the the, um, websites and the social media platforms where your children are congregating? And also, um, how they use it in a whole range, a a whole myriad of different ways. The second B is we've got to make sure that technology doesn't interfere with their basic needs. So, you know, are they getting sufficient sleep, play, physical movement, um, relationships, et cetera? And the third B, um, and I actually think this is the most critical one, um, and that is are they having opportunities to be bored? Mm. Um, Our brain was never designed to be plugged in and switched on 24-7. We have ancient Paleolithic brains trying to operate in this high-tech digital world and they haven't evolved to do that. Um, So as the pilot, get those things right no matter what your child's age is and they will flourish um, but their basic needs will also be met at the same time. I can hear people listening going, okay, great, but how the hell do I figure that out? You know, what is it? What are the guidelines? How much is too much? What is it little, you know, where do I even start? What, what's your advice or where do you point people to get more understanding? And basically, do you have written rules for some parents just to go, okay, I'm going to take what Christy said and implement myself? 
So um, I, I try and recommend two things. I think looking at some of the um, government guidelines as sort of a ballpark figure, a rough estimate, you know, their guidelines, their recommendations, we don't have to stringently adopt them and sort of hold ourselves to account with them. Um, so using them as a baseline measure and then going back to um, what I was talking about before, you know, making sure and don't force technology on kids if they're not showing an interest certainly don't feel that you're going to set them up for failure if they're not coding by the time they enter school and <laughs> typing in preschool you know there's no research that tells us that hot housing those skills will set them up for academic success um, or lifelong success I go back to making sure um, that their basic those basic needs are met so for example say you've got um, a primary school student we know that the government recommendations for sleep over a 24-hour period they should be getting between 9 and 11 hours so if you imagine a 24-hour period um, and imagine I often use an analogy when I talk to parents of a glass jar and a, a glass jar represents your child's 24 hour period or a week, whatever sort of time you want to use. In that glass jar, you need to put in kids' basic needs. So you've got to put in, are they getting enough sleep? Are they getting play? Are they physically active? Are they developing language and relationship skills? Now we've got government guidelines that I really strongly endorse with sleep. There's really important great empirical scientific evidence that tells us these are the baseline measures that kids need. So let's say you got nine to 11 hours sleep. Let's say you got the 11 hour sleeper. We also know that at the moment, the current government guidelines for physical activity for five to 12 year olds is one hour of physical activity a day. That's already half of their day, 12 hours taken up with just two of those basic needs, mm -hmm. sleep and physical movement. Then when you factor in that five to 12 year olds are usually at school, we need to make sure that those other needs, are they, you know, are they reading, are they communicating with their friends, all those sorts of other skills, that takes up a significant amount of time. Then once those basic needs go in that glass jar, we often have, I imagine the needs as a ball, like a, a sphere, those, those balls or marbles go in the jar, there's white space around the outside of those marbles that could be filled up with screen time and we wouldn't have to panic because their basic needs are in that jar first. But what is happening, um, and the research tells us that this, that in most Australian households, we take out the basic needs. What fills the jar up first is screen time. And all of a sudden, we're seeing their basic needs displaced. We have a sleep epidemic in Australia, not just with secondary kids, but with primary kids, kids that aren't getting enough sleep, kids that are increasingly more sedentary. Um, we've got children that are entering school. Uh, school with a club group so they don't even know how to hold their pencil because they're not hanging off trees and off monkey bars and rolling and tumbling and all the prerequisite skills that you need to be a good learner um, so I think going back to what we know that they need um, and then making sure that it's not too much um, there's some red flags that you could look for if you thought they were using it excessively but basically making sure those those basic needs are going in the jar first um, and not having all that panic. Can you enlighten us briefly? I don't know if you can briefly on a few of those red flags, what to keep a watch out for. Yes. So uh, in 2019, um, the World Health Organization recognized gaming addiction as a legitimate mental health issue. Now, there's still amongst researchers and health professionals, a lot of conjecture as to whether that is a legitimate mental health issue, um, whether, you know, a behavioral addiction is the same as a substance addiction. Um, but basically what the World Health Organization said was that there's some generic red flags. The problem with red flags with any sort 
sort of digital addiction is that they recommend that you have at least three to five red flags and that the symptoms are present for a minimum of 12 months. Now, I don't know many parents that would tolerate 12 months of things like, um, you know, they look at uh, have they developed a, a tolerance? Do they need to use technology for increasing amounts of time to get basically the same pleasure or the same hit from it? Um, do and, and some of the, the indicators or red flags are also very um, muddled with what we would consider normal development. Um, so do they become moody or agitated, which is a normal stage of development? Uh, do they does their emic performance suddenly decrease? Um, do they become suddenly disinterested in any other activities? Uh, do they hide um, or try and be discreet with their digital behaviours? Um, is it impacting their other uh, life pursuits? Um, is it impacting on their their sleep um, or other relationships with people? Um, And do they demonstrate, and this is the really hard one to demonstrate, do they demonstrate withdrawal? So when they don't get the technology, that they become agitated or frustrated. The problem for many families is that they say their kids have constant access to technology that it's almost hard to prove that they go through withdrawal unless they often go on an international flight or an overseas flight where all of a sudden they don't have Wi-Fi access. that, that parents realise sometimes then that they're in hot water with their, chick, their kids. Christy, do you have gaming in your household? Do you allow it? You don't have to answer this, but just it, gaming interests me and the world of esports because it is growing rapidly around the world. Yes, um, my boys aren't particularly interested. I've got um, one boy that shows a very strong interest and knowing the way that he um, behaves and some of his behavioural tendencies, we've decided not to introduce gaming because it would be, we know he has, um, it would be very problematic for him. Um, We've got an older son who isn't particularly interested. Um, They have a lot of outdoor um, sporting pursuits that they're interested in for now. So we're really trying to harness that. Um, they do certainly use technology. Um, you know, they they watch things. They're quite interested in um, camping and building things. Um, so they watch things on YouTube. Um, they play some interactive games amongst each other, but they don't have a gaming console um, per se. So, yeah, they do certainly use technology, but not necessarily popular games as such there are so many questions I want to ask and like honestly there's about 30 questions I want to ask but I really do want to talk about COVID because it is really relevant right now and when you talk about that jar and filling that jar up and sleeping and you know even after school care activities and sports and going to school there's not much left in the jar like you said for screen time to happen however in the face of COVID-19 when everybody is isolating at home there, it's a lot trickier. If you're only going outside for one hour of the day to go for a walk as a family, some may not even be doing that. How do you balance that job essentially and limit the screen time through these really strange times? Yes, so I'm the first to admit, um, and one of the things I want I want everyone to breathe out a sigh of relief because I can almost feel everyone's shoulders elevated while we're talking <laughs> about this. We need to lower the bar. This is the point in in time where trying to adhere to your strict screen time rules isn't going to serve anyone. Um, You're going to become more agitated as a parent. 
chances are your child, particularly if they're in primary or secondary school, will be expected to be doing remote online learning. Um, so this is where it comes back to that conversation that we had at the beginning is what are they doing with that time? You know, is it leisure? Is it learning? Is it age appropriate? So really focusing on the what. Um, also having some control over when, you know, try to limit. I often say to parents, try not to bookend their day with technology. So discourage them from using it first thing in the morning. Um, we know that when us as adults as well, when we start the day with technology, um, we often activate our limbic system, which is the, the part of the brain that's the fight, flight or flee response. Um, you know, as an adult, you only need to see one, you know, rude email or one upsetting post on social media and you feel that, um, you know, that's our, our sympathetic nervous system. We activate that limbic system. Um, often we enter this state before our feet have even hit the floor first thing in the morning. Um, so trying to do that, this is why often parents say, you know, my child's really agitated when I take them off the screen. I call it the techno tantrum. That's often because they've been hyper aroused on the technology before the day has started. Equally at night, we know that um, using it before they go to sleep, particularly in the 60 to 90 minutes before they go to sleep, can delay the onset of sleep and can also really negatively impact on the quality of the sleep that they get. So what I'm encouraging parents to do is um, focus more on what they're doing, focus on when they're doing it, and also how. Are they using it in ways that won't harm their eyesight? Um, we know, we used to think that looking at a screen was one of the main reasons we have seen a huge increase in myopia amongst young people. And we thought that screens were the main culprit. What we know is it's what screens are displacing. And that is time in natural sunlight. Natural sunlight elongates the myopic nerve, which stops children from getting myopia. Um, so trying to, I say to parents at this point in time, control the controllables. And yeah. what you've got control over isn't necessarily how much, particularly if the school's dictating, you know, that they're doing Zoom calls and getting information online and presenting it online. Try where you can to get them doing more creation than they are consumption. So more time using the technology to write things and, and um, create content as opposed to just sitting there watching YouTube clips or watching Netflix, um, etc. So creation trumps um creation trumps, sorry, um, consumption, and, and then control those other things such as when and how they're doing it. And what about social media? We know in schools that you typically sh can't take your phone into class. I know the rules uh, have gotten stricter in the last sort of six to 12 months especially, um, and some schools have never allowed phones in classrooms. But now if we're facing, you know, virtual classrooms, it is so easy for kids to sit there on Instagram, on Snapchat, and there's a number of issues with that. How, what are some things you can put in place with those teenagers that can be on it all day long? Yes, so I'm going to say two things here. One, um, at this point in time, our young people need social media if that is, if it's age appropriate for them, and again, if it's moderated in the right ways. Um, our most basic, all of us as humans, our most fundamental basic psychological driver is the need for connection. We are hardwired for relational connection. Given that we are socially isolated, isolated now, our teenagers, and it's natural, as teenagers go through adolescence, their natural biological need is to pull away from the family unit and gravitate more towards their peer group. And that's why social media is so appealing to them because it's an easy way to do that. Mm. Given that we are isolated, we need to acknowledge that they do need to be using this to connect with their peers. Now, that doesn't mean we give them unsupervised, untethered access, um, but they, I think we need to acknowledge that this is a really valid platform for them to connect with. 
might not understand it. You know, we'd grow up where we took, you know, filtered photographs of ourselves. Um, I often say to parents, you know, your daughter or your son's selfie would have been the equivalent to us getting a Polaroid camera taking a reverse photo, printing it out and going around the street, handing it out to random strangers and asking them to like, share and pass on the photo to others. It's <laughs> just so foreign to us. The other thing I'm going to say, the second part of answering this, is that we need to teach our students um, the most critical skill that they need to be productive and effective in the 21st century is the capacity to manage their attention span. And this is a really hard skill when the technologies that they're using and that they love have been deliberately engineered to hijack and prey on their attention. Um, so, you know, teaching them how to build a fortress around your focus. You need to do an hour of online learning. I'd love for you to put your phone on do not disturb. Pop it in a drawer so you don't see it. Um, turn it to grayscale. When you're on your tablet or your laptop, maximise the window. So all those tempting icons at the bottom of the screen or the apps, you know, the colour of the apps have been intentionally designed. Steve Jobs, when he released the first iPod said he wanted to make the icon so appealing that people wanted to lick their phone, lick their <laughs> device. That tells you something about the choice of colours and the persuasive design techniques. So explicitly teaching your young um, child or your student how they can manage their attention span. Um, we struggle with this as adults. You know, we salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get an alert or notification or the ping of an email. So talking to them, even, you know, turning off your um, alerts and notifications when you have to focus on your online activity, um, having social media hours saying, look, between these hours, you can can check in just so that they can start to try to self-regulate. Um, a lot of the work I'm doing now is with corporates and corporate clients are saying this is the most critical skill. They've got people that are more distracted than they've ever been. And it's not just new recruits. It's a lot of adults as well. Putting on my, and just thinking then, teachers and looking at a screen exclusively for an hour, my attention, I really do struggle with that hand on heart. I mean, it's getting harder and harder because the more I disengage or it's just it's happening to everybody. And all I'm thinking is, well, these kids, well, those teachers better change the way they teach and be really engaging and reeling out there. How much, you know, pressure is it on the teacher to step it up as well? Or is that a bit of a cop out? It's huge pressure. Uh, I, you know, I was a teacher at one point in time and I can only imagine the amount, the huge amount of pressure that they're under, not only making this radical shift in how they've delivered their teaching in a really short period of time, um, but to try and do it in a way that is really foreign to a lot of them. Um, we know, you know, there's a reason that TED Talks um, or TEDx Talks are 18 minutes because paying attention to a screen is so much more cognitively taxing. There's visual elements to process, there's sound effects to, to process, um, you know, there's competing design principles that, that prey on our attention. Um, so, it is really hard, but I do think um, what I'm really concerned about, I will say this, is I'm worried that teachers are going to try and superimpose their existing teaching practices on a digital format. So I get up and I'm going to deliver my content to you and you're all going to sit there in your video rooms and, you know, pay attention and that's not going to cut it. It really won't. Um, 
there are some schools that are certainly doing really innovative things with technology where students are going into virtual breakout rooms and having discussions. They're creating things in real time um, using artificial intelligence and virtual reality. That's not necessarily the case, unfortunately, with all schools. Speaking of um, being responsible, not just um, teachers, but parents as well. So I think about me on my phone and what is, what should I be responsible for? What is a good, um, being a good role model and what is not? What should parents, where do the parents need to be accountable? And, um, and essentially, if you were to be really present and to go for walks with them or do something, does that counter, you know, counteract everything that you do if you're sitting on your phone all day or not really? Yes, I'm going to go back to what the research says and hide behind science. (laughs) (laughs) This is also a really polarizing topic um, because there's a term, the researchers are actually calling it technoglet um, or digital abandonment, which is a really harsh term I don't particularly like. I think there's some really negative connotations with that. But what I'm worried about as being a mum, and I'm the first to admit I'm guilty of using my phone around my kids when I shouldn't, you know, trying to reply to the message that was sent four days ago and my child's there vying for my attention, or I might justify it and say, look, I need to quickly respond to a client's email and I'll just do it here while you're entertained doing this. That's okay every now and then. I'm realistic. To suggest that you never use your phone or any technology around your kids is unrealistic. They need to see us use it, but they also need to see us turn it off. Um, And I'm worried that we are potentially missing what I call the micro moments of connection with our kids if we are always digitally distracted. Um, You know, when your kids do swimming lessons and they finally master the tumble turn and they look at, at you, they've got their cap half off and their goggles filled with water and they look up to give you the wink and the thumbs up. And you've missed it because your head's buried yeah. in the phone. And they um, see you on your phone. That's heartbreaking. They do. I, mm. I in my book, shared a, a story um, I unfortunately witnessed a couple of years ago where a parent was at the, where well, we a lot of us were at the park, and I was doing, I call it some keen social observation. My husband said I was being a sticky beak. <laughs> um, but I was standing there doing some social observation and watched a little girl. She was at the park and she'd announced to everyone as she walked in the park that she'd just turned four. So she was climbing up the rope apex, the, you know, the piece of climbing equipment that every parent dreads and every child loves. And she got to the very top and she was at the top and she's waving her arms around. She's saying, mum, mum, mum. And mum was there and mum was on her device scrolling. Um, and she kept vying for her mum's attention and her mum just gave her the sort of generic without looking up, the thumbs up um, and kept scrolling on her device. I watched this little girl fall from the very top of that rope apex. Oh. She wasn't looking for her mum's validation. She was looking for her mum's help. Oh. She fell from the top. Now she was completely okay. Um, and that is an extreme example, but there are increasing numbers of mm. children presenting to emergency departments because of playground injuries um, and anecdotally, the evidence is suggesting that one of the reasons, not the only reason, one of the reasons is parents that are digitally distracted. So there's that sort of extreme measure um, or implication. The other one is the more subtle, nuanced, exactly what you were talking about. They see us constantly distracted. We know that kids' brains have something called mirror neurons, so they're wired to imitate. It's really hard for them to develop good tech boundaries if all they see are their parents tethered to technology. Mm. So by all means, use it. Let them see you use it, but also try um, to switch it off so you're not constantly distracted by it. 
And then I've got one last question before we finish on our 21st century women, a couple of questions that we do at the end. And this is, should we see COVID-19 last, for example, the next term, say six to eight weeks? We certainly are getting um, messages that it's going to last longer than, you know, we hopefully anticipated originally. But if that's the case, there's going to be habits and our normal life will we will get quite used to, as will our kids, the way they're learning and the way they're acting and at home and all of these bits and pieces we've touched on. What's your advice coming out the other side? How do we help get back to that normal life and basically reduce that screen time again? So I think it starts now by telling our kids and having conversations with them, not to them, um, that the screen rules that we've got in place now are because we've got really unusual circumstances. So, you know, chances are you're going to be able to watch more movies than you ordinarily would. You probably will get to use, you know, the laptop or the tablet more than what you normally would and explain to them because we want kids to see technology as a functional tool. We don't want them to be afraid of it or something that's just a special privilege or used every now and then. We want them to see it in a functional way. So I think having those conversations, the other part of it is getting their buying listening to their voice now you can't do this with two-year-olds um but certainly with you know later preschool kids and primary and secondary kids get their buy-in you know come up with some of the boundaries you know what do you think are some appropriate apps that you can use what times of the day should we try to limit when you use it um you know can you start to use it in ways that are are healthy so trying to get their buy-in and just explaining these circumstances um and then i'm going to say to parents and i'm going to be the bearer of bad news here but once school does finally return um, and I can hear the collective shouts and sighs from here it's it's going to get worse before it gets better these could be some hard habits to break you know I think any parents parent who's endured the techno tantrum will vouch just how intense and and stressful they can be um, be prepared these are behaviors that we might have to reverse Fair enough. It sounds daunting, but it's all invaluable <laughs> insight. So, so I, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful. What do you have a book that you would recommend for us? You've got your own book and I can hear people running out trying to buy that right now thinking, how do we get through this? But do you have another one you can recommend? Yeah, I've, I'm an avid reader. And so to ask, I'm a self-confessed nerd, to ask a nerd to pick one book is really <laughs> a cruel thing to do. We've got um, on that. You can go. <laughs> so I'm going to pick one of my favourites, um, Essentialism um, by Greg McEwan. Um, great book in so many ways, um, but talks about, you know, prioritising the potent and figuring out what essential things are. Um, so from a broader perspective, I guess that would be my favorite and a quote that uh, you live by or one that might inspire you through these times so one of my favorite parenting quotes was by Maya Angelou and she basically said when you know better you do better um and that has served me there's so many times particularly with this topic I often have parents say oh my goodness you know I've you know, one of the things I often talk about with parents that we haven't talked about tonight is about trying not to use technology as a reward or a punishment tool. And so many of us do it. And when I explain why, um, I often have parents coming up saying, I feel rotten because I have punished them, you know, by take, confiscating the gaming console or I've taken my daughter's smartphone and told her I'll never have it back. And we know that often has the adverse impact 
you know, um, we know if there's any perceived threat of digital amputation, our kids actually don't come to us when they're facing digital dilemmas. Um, so when you know better, you do better. So trying to avoid um, some of those pitfalls, but that can only come about by hearing this type of information. So that's why I'm passionate about sharing evidence-based information with parents, but without the guilt, grief and guesswork that often goes along with it. Well, I know certainly I've learned a whole lot and um, and you're spot on. I think knowing makes you feel so much better. Maybe a little bit of guilt in there, that's for sure. <laughs> but And a bit over, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, uh, I'll admit. And I have a one-year-old, so I'm sure there's others that are feeling a little bit overwhelmed. But um, but having the information on hand to make decisions and, and, and to feel like you're making the right ones rather than second-guessing yourself has got to be nice. Um, certainly feeling be nicer than feeling the techno guilt which you frame up. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. They are absolutely invaluable. And, um, yeah, I encourage people to jump on, on your socials. Is this technically okay to <laughs> plug the socials? If, <laughs> you know, do it I when do. your kid's asleep, okay? Um, and that's right. Or when you need a hit of dopamine to try and cope with your parenting, go on social media. It feels that yeah, need for it. dopamine. All the opposite. It makes you feel horrible. Delete it for a week. Um, <laughs> but thank you for your time again and uh, all the best through with your three kids through this uh, COVID strange times. Thank you, Jenna.